My guest today is Professor Neil Martinek, who's Professor of Physics at the Enrico Fermi Institute and the College of the University of Chicago. His research focuses on string theory and particle physics. Welcome, Neil. Hi. So um, this is a subject that I, I know very little about, and that makes it very exciting for me. Um, so we're going to have maybe two or three conversations around this. It's a deep subject. Um, I think the general public is have heard string theory, fascinated uh, about it, but don't maybe don't know a lot about it. So I want to sort of rewind time a little bit um, and establish the idea why string theory might be needed. So the way that I understand this, Emil, is that late uh, 1600s, Isaac Newton proposed uh, the law of universal gravitation. It was deterministic. It um, it was uh, it uh, it had predictable power in many of the things that we were measuring at that time, uh, but it couldn't quite explain how how it worked. <laughs> it was sort of Einstein called Einstein called in a different context spooky action at a distance. This was also spooky action at a distance in in 1700s. Um, and then late 1800, James Clark Maxwell came up with uh, sort of the first unification of magnetism and electricity. Um, and then we had quite a few advancements right after that. Um, yeah. And so could you talk a bit about the other two? So we had gravity and electromagnetism established early on. And then we figured there are two other fundamental forces, right? So we have four of them now. So what is the what is the progression there? Yeah. So um, yeah, it's probably best to start with with Newton. I mean, if, if we if we're going to take sort of a big picture of you know where did modern theoretical physics come from? Um, you know, I think really you can trace the history back to Newton. Um, and the the idea that that you if you want to formulate you know the motion of bodies as some set of mathematical equations, um, well, you know first of all the mathematics didn't exist for Newton, so the first thing he had to do was invent the calculus. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's, and that that's kind of a theme in theory in theoretical physics that that advances in our understanding of how to quantify the laws of nature come hand in hand with advances in the mathematics in which to express those laws of nature. And so so indeed Newton invented the calculus and uh, and then he invented his, uh, you know, maybe every uh, person with a little bit of science education learns about Newton's three laws of motion. Um, right. And and um, the 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 one that's important for dynamics uh, is the idea that force equals mass times acceleration, uh, and uh, and and so acceleration is the is the way that you know bodies begin to move, <clears throat> and uh, and so so what Newton's law tells you is that if there's some force acting on the body, it starts to change its state of motion, uh, and and so. Uh, the what the way the way the calculus comes in is to say that uh, and and the way sort of you know deterministic dynamics uh, played out you know for subsequent centuries 
is the idea that uh, if you hand me the positions and velocities of all of the particles around you uh, at some instant of time, then specify for me what are the forces acting on all of those particles, then um, Newton says, okay, the force determines how the, how the particles' velocities are changing, and I can gradually, uh, you know, evolve those uh, equations forward in time to determine the subsequent evolution forever after. So there's this idea of a sort of a deterministic dynamics. You lay down some initial condition. There are some laws of motion that determine the subsequent evolution of that data forward in time. Uh, and then, so the state of the universe, you know, forever after is determined. And um, in a way, you know, his, one of his first applications of those laws of motion was to gravitation. And uh, I don't know if you want to call this the first bit of unification <laughs> of <laughs> physics, um, but the idea that uh, the gravity as we experience it on Earth, uh, you know, as, you know, uh, uh, force governing, you know, how apples fall from trees um, uh, is the same force that governs the motion of the planets uh, as they orbit the sun. Uh, that, that that sort of, you know, two different, very different contexts uh, in which there are two seemingly different forces of, of nature are really all different aspects of the same thing, maybe on different scales, mm. um, but are, are really the, the, the same underlying um, phenomenon. Yeah, so, so that's an interesting way to think about it. So it is sort of the, as you say, it's a first unification. We see practical applications of a phenomenon, but we think they are different things. Yeah. So he brought it brought it to a common framework and that's wrote down an equation. That is that is sort of the first unification, right? Yeah. So it's it's sort of like, you know, the 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 dropping of an apple, you know, is it's falling some distance of, you know, a few meters. Um, you know, is a vastly different scale than the distance between the Earth and the Sun, uh, which is, you know, um, millions of kilometers. So, um, uh, you know, the, the, the fact that the same force can act uh, on vastly different scales um, and produce seemingly different phenomena uh, is, uh, you know, is, is something that we tr strive to do in formulating laws of nature. You, know, you say there are only four fundamental forces. Well, we see an immense variety of phenomena in the world. You know, the idea that one can somehow reduce um, uh, the laws of physics to such a small number of, of seemingly uh, fundamental um, uh, forces uh, is, uh, in, in a way, it's a, you know, a great triumph of the last several hundred years of, uh, you know, progress in theoretical physics. Yeah, so and then Maxwell shows up um, with um, <laughs> with another big brain, so to speak, and uh, does something really remarkable, um, and that is unifying electricity and magnetism, right? Yeah, so so there is a situation where you know in the beginnings of the 19th century, you know people were discovering electricity. Um, and uh, and magnetism, and realizing that, for instance, if I put if you put a um, a compass needle next to a wire uh, that's carrying electricity, that uh, the compass needle 
uh, doesn't point north anymore. It shifts its orientation in response to the nearby uh, uh, electric uh, forces in the wire. And, and so that was the sort of an indication that there might be some relation between electricity and magnetism. And there were, you know, a number of 19th century physicists, uh, um, you know, um, uh, Faraday, Ampere, I mean, could, could list a whole bunch of names, uh, that started uh, formulating laws of electricity, laws of magnetism, and ways in which they were related. Um, and so the grand synthesis came with Maxwell uh, in the 1850s um, to say that uh, I can write down for you a small number of uh, mathematical equations, again, in the spirit of Newton, um, and these mathematical equations govern all phenomena involving electricity and magnetism. And there was a prediction that came out of those um, uh, formulas uh, that he wrote down. Um, and uh, and, and in, in a way began uh, a big sea change in the way we conceptualize uh, physics. So, you know, prior to, to Maxwell, um, one of the laws of, um, of electricity was, was uh, um, Coulomb's determination of what's the force between two charged particles. But it, it actually looks very much like the force between um, two masses. Um, and, you know, the, which was measured uh, by uh, British physicist Cavendish, um, you know, of what was called the inverse square law. That is, if I have two masses, then the force between them on, under gravity is proportional to each of their masses and falling off like one over the distance squared between them. Uh, okay, and, and Coulomb's law of electromagnetism looks very similar. You just replace the masses by the electric charges. So two electric charges interact with a force which is inversely proportional to the square of the distance between them and also proportional to how much charge each one has. Yeah. Um, and with Maxwell, um, the, the, the sort of, and, and the, the you know, ideas that led up to Maxwell was the idea that it's not that there's this, as you call it, called it spooky action at a distance, that, that somehow this particle instantaneously generates a force on this particle. Uh, the idea that sprung up is that uh, the particle, uh, the first particles, say, has um, associated to it what's called an electric field that is permeating space around it um, is a field that responds to the electric charge. And so what happens is that, is that uh, locally in space, um, the electric field um, is disturbed by this particle. And that disturbance propagates through space by a set of equations, and those are Maxwell's equations, telling you how the electric field and the magnetic field uh, propagate from point to point in space. And so charges and, and the motion of charges, uh, the motion of charges are electric currents. And so charges and the corresponding electric currents of moving charges create electric and magnetic fields. Those fields move in space from one place to another. And then the particle over here says, um, oh, I'm in a non-trivial electric and magnetic field, and I'm a charged particle, so I should respond to the electric and magnetic field in my vicinity. Uh, 
And so it changes the spooky action at a distance to a very sort of logical propagation of influences from one place to another um, through the medium of a field, in this case, the electromagnetic field. And yeah, so, so I want to uh, touch back on Newton very quickly. So this guy should have had a lot of time on his hands in addition to inventing calculus. He, he set humanity on a path of arrogance uh, in some way that you can write down equations, equations that, that determine uh, how things work. And, and, and humanity was, has never been the same after that, right? Yeah, well, it, it confers a lot of power um, in, in that uh, these equations have very practical consequences um, for you know the world around us, and and how we can influence the world around not not just you know see things in the world around us, but also influence the world around us. I mean you know everything in our modern age is um, well, not everything, but but so many things in our modern age, you know the electronic age. Are, are consequences of these equations that were written down, you know, 170 years ago. Um, and, and so, for instance, the, the, one of the very first consequences of Maxwell's equations was that, you know, if he was thinking about describing phenomena like, you know, currents running through wires and, you know, uh, magnets and things like that, and what he discovered was that, you know, in order for the electric field and magnetic field created by this charge over here to influence this field, this charged particle over here, the, as I was saying, the influence has to propagate. Well, how fast does it propagate? It propagates with the speed of light. And so um, an immediate consequence of Maxwell's equations was that light is an electromagnetic phenomenon that um, there is a prediction that if you move around electric charges, that you create electromagnetic waves, and those waves travel with the speed of light. And that prediction was took 30 years, but uh, Heinrich Hertz, the uh, German physicist, uh, used moving el electric charges in a wire to make radio waves, and that's why we, you know, have you know denominate the frequency of electromagnetic waves as having uh, hertz as their units. Um, uh, and and so, so this, the, the the equations you know um, sometimes have unforeseen consequences, uh, which then lead to you know predictions, which lead to experimental verifications, and then you know yesterday's experimental verification becomes tomorrow's uh, you know laboratory tool, um, you know, and so so you know much of what we do uh, is to manipulate electric and magnetic fields to our benefit. Yeah, so we'll, we'll come back to this, uh, Emil. So as you say, equations are useful. Sometimes we may have equations that we don't understand yet, but if you have equations, that could be quite useful <laughs> to yeah. think about things. So, so we, we think about that in the in the, the string theory context later. And I want to sort of skip over general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics. And um, so the, these other two forces, the strong force and the weak force, when did we find them? So, um, so the 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 strong and weak nuclear forces, I would say, the sort of beginnings of our understanding of them come with the discovery of radioactivity, 
uh, in the turn of the 20th century. Um, you know, finding this, well, so maybe the first thing we should say is that, that um, you know, throughout much of the 19th century, we didn't even understand that there were atoms. Um, uh, the, the idea that, that uh, you know, matter comes in, you know, discrete quanta, uh, you know, that, that there are these underlying particles, you know, electrons and protons and so on, um, that make up matter. Uh, didn't really come until around that time when people were able to uh, isolate the particles and you know detect some of their properties, um, and and so you know the electron was discovered discovered in the in the late 1890s uh, as something that was emitted by um, uh, vacuum tubes, uh, uh, you know. <laughs> Forerunners of transistors. <laughs> that is uh, that is JJ Thompson. JJ Thompson, yes. Yeah. Um, and then there was the discovery of uh, you know natural. So so he just you know discovered you know what were then called beta rays. I mean the ter terminology is long since you know disused, but um, <laughs> the that that he discovered this sort of like particle being emitted by this vacuum tube. Um, and you know that it was bent by electric and magnetic fields, and uh, you know you determine its mass and charge and so on. Um, and and uh, so uh, there was also you know naturally occurring radioactivity in certain materials. That, for instance, uh, you know Marie Curie was uh, you know the uh, one of the leading uh, physicists. Discovering various forms of radioactivity with, with uh, two Nobel prizes, I will add. Two Nobel, yes, <laughs> uh, and and um, uh, and uh, it, it and so uh, you know wasn't fully understood what was creating these uh, particles of radioactivity, um, and now we understand it as. Uh, the fact that uh, atoms have, uh, you know, nuclei made out of protons and neutrons, and sometimes those proton, those configurations of protons and neutrons aren't entirely stable, and uh, they may decay over some period of time. Um, and you know, different materials have different amounts of natural radioactivity depending on how unstable their nuclei are. Um, and uh, uh, so. So there. Let me, let me ask you this, Adrian. So yeah. on the strong force side, it is sort of counterintuitive from a, you know, without knowing much about it. I mean, you can have protons of the same positive charge sort of staying together, right? Is that, it was that ratio? So the, so the strong force, so, so um, yeah, so, so there, there are two things to say. So I, let me put the, the radioactivity aside for the moment. And talk about atomic nuclei. Um, and uh, so you're quite right. Uh, you know, um, you know the one of the laws of electricity and magnetism is that if two charge, if two particles have the same kind of charge, the same sign of electric charge, then the force they experience is repulsive. They they tend to try to push each other apart. Whereas if the two charges have the opposite sign, like say an electron and a proton, they attract. Yeah. So you know the the idea that 
an electron and a proton, say in a hydrogen atom, can make a bound state seems perfectly natural because the electron and the proton are attracted to one another. And so if they get close enough, the force that keeps them, you know, revolving around each other is, you know, is reasonably strong and, and you know, the hydrogen atom is stable. Okay. But if I look at helium, which has two protons, uh, well, the protons have the same, all protons are the same. <laughs> in particular, they have the same electric charge. So why don't the two protons in the helium nucleus, you know, repel one another and fly apart? And the answer is the strong nuclear force that um, that uh, there's not only the electromagnetic force that's causing the protons to repel, but also uh, there's an additional force, the strong nuclear force, uh, which electrons don't feel, but protons do, and neutrons do as well. And so the, the nucleus is bound together by these strong nuclear forces uh, that, that keep the protons from being unstable. Um, so, so if I, I don't know if I understand this, uh, Emil. So, uh, will it be correct in thinking that this is very strong, but it's in very short uh, space? Yes. Because the, the nucleus is pretty small, right? Yes. So, so the idea is so so um, so so this so the stability of nuclei. So, you you if you ask, you know, what stabilizes nuclei. Well, you know, we don't see any um, helium atoms with just uh, two protons and no neutrons. Um, it seems like they always come with at least one and often two uh, neutrons, and that it's only the combination of the two protons and the two neutrons together that are sufficient to sort of bind everything together in a stable way. Um, and, you know, if you look at the periodic table, that's sort of a theme that the atomic, the, the sort of number of protons and the number of neutrons is approximately equal uh, for, for most nuclei. Mm. And uh, the reason is that there's this electrostatic repulsion that the protons yeah. are feeling. So the way you can beat the electrostatic, you know, the electric force that's repelling the protons is to add more strong force. And the way you add more strong force is if you add neutrons to the, to the nucleus, mm. then you've added more nuclear attraction because both the neutrons and the protons feel the strong nuclear force, but you've oh, sort of diluted the electrostatic repulsion because uh, there's, you know, that's only felt by the protons. So the neutrons bring in sort of more uh, strong force attraction without at the same time bringing in more electrostatic repulsion. And so that's sort of the thing that stabilizes the nuclei. Oh, wow. Okay, yeah, I had no clue about this. So, so you have to have certain number of neutrons in the nucleus for mm -hmm. it to be stable. Yeah, um, and and so so um, and so you see this all over uh, the periodic table. So um, uh, uh, you know the 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 idea that that the that 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 uh, you know there's sort of a, a, a sort of normal range of stability. Of, uh, of nuclear matter, uh, at least as we see it in the atomic nucleus, um, yep. is, is, you know, this balance. Um, now, I should say that, that uh, so, so, you know, the, this, what I'm describing is sort of the, the theory of nuclear forces as it existed, say, in the 1930s, yep. when people thought that the fundamental particles were the proton 
and the neutron uh, and certain particles that carry the strong nuclear force between them, like we were talking before about the electromagnetic field sort of binding things together. The thinking was that there was some kind of force, strong force. In this case, it, the thinking was that it was mediated by a particle called the pion, which by that time had been discovered in, in you know, nuclear uh, uh, collisions. And so, you know, again, it was sort of the same idea that there, there are fundamental particles, uh, that there are forces, and the way the forces propagate between uh, the different matter constituents is by the exchange of, in the case of electromagnetism, it's by exchanging photons, the particle of light. In the case of the strong nuclear force, it's by exchanging pions. It was thought at that time that the pion was sort of the, the force carrier. But we, we moved on. We, but we, we moved, moved on. on from that, right? we, so, so, we, so what's our current understanding there? Is it so, or something like that? Yes. So we now understand that actually there's an, yet another layer of structure um, that both this pion, the force carrier, and the protons and neutrons are themselves uh, composites of more fundamental particles, namely the quarks and gluons of the strong. It's the Russian, it's the Russian doll game. In very, in very, <laughs> yes, very much so. Uh, and and but you know part of the the hubris of string theory, which we'll get to in the end, is is you know the the notion that there's a last layer <laughs> to the Russian doll. Um, you know that that you but, can't. But there's a limit to it, and we will get to it. Um, we we can't go anything beyond ten to the minus thirty-five meters or something like that, right? The plan. Yeah, that, that's yeah. right. That there that there are fundamental limits to how small you can make things. Um, but but right now we're talking about sort of the this you know scales of the size of the atomic nucleus, um, and so as you say, um, the the nuclear force has a finite range. In the original, you know, conception of the 1930s, it was because um, the pion sort of had a finite range of propagation, um, uh, and so that sort of limited the range uh, over which uh, the strong nuclear force would be experienced by by uh, strongly interacting particles. Now we understand it as something else. It's that um, uh, the strong force is truly strong, and if you try to take a quark and rip it out of a proton, it says, I don't like that, and immediately creates uh, a stream of uh, strongly interacting so-called gluons or uh, what, well, it's a, it's the, the theory of the, the current theory of the strong interactions is now modeled very much on the, uh, on Maxwell's model, mm. Maxwell's idea that the fundamental charge particles are the quarks and that the force carriers, instead of uh, uh, being photons, there are these particles called gluons. And we even use the same, and, and because there are sort of three kinds of charge in the strong interactions, uh, people gave the name color um, to, to describe it. Uh, and physicists are always uh, sort of uh, playing with language in describing things and trying to use uh, our our experience of of you know language and describing things to sort of borrow the same concepts to describe much more alien things happening in the subatomic realm. 
And so, um, so the idea is that uh, the quarks carry this color charge and that there are three kinds of colors. So people call them, you know, red, green, and blue, <laughs> uh, in an analogy to the, to the sort of three basic colors of nature. And so, like, and, and the idea is that, is that uh, anything which is colored emits the strong force by emitting uh, a, a field of gluons around it. And, um, and the, the problem is that, that if, if you try to pull something away and, and get an isolated colored particle, in the same way you get an isolated charged particle in electromagnetism, the problem is that it costs you more and more energy. The reason it's called the strong force is that the amount of energy it costs you increases with the distance mm. that you try to pull it away. Rather than it's sort of the other way around, right? So it's the other way around. Gravity, distance, gravity and electromagnetism yeah. die off with distance. Colored particles feel a force which increases with the distance. Hmm. And and this was actually kind of part of the origin of string theory, that um, that um, what what our, our our you know modern understanding is that what's happening is that the uh, chromoelectric, let's call them chromoelectric and chromomagnetic fields, <laughs> which is actually the terminology that people use. Uh, the, the, the charge is called color. And so the, the, the sort of field that's emitted by a colored object are chromoelectric and chromomagnetic fields. And what happens is that the chromoelectric and chromomagnetic fields are, um, are confined to a narrow um, uh, tubular region between the separating particles. Mm. And so the that sort of little um, sort of rubber band, if you like, or you know, yeah. that 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 region of excited uh, chromoelectric and chromomagnetic field um, you know is is something which if I try to separate the particles, it costs me the energy to create more and more chromoelectric and chromomagnetic field. Mm. And roughly speaking, the energy it costs me is proportional to the distance I separate them, not dying off like the separation. Is the the practical intuition I have, Emil, I don't know if this is the right, right thing. So could I think about this as sort of connected by a spring? Yes. The, the further so, you sort of move them around, you know, the more force they have to come together. Something like that's right. So it's the same idea as a rubber band, right? If I have a rubber band, you know, if I want to stretch the rubber band, I have to apply a force, and the amount of the amount of energy I have to supply to stretch the rubber band a certain distance is proportional to the distance. And so, you know, if I if I if I you know if you like the amount of work I have to do, yeah, in order to stretch the rubber band, and the more I want to stretch it, the more I have to work. <laughs> Okay. So they are they are physically connected, but they are magnetically and electrically connected. It works almost the same way, so to speak. That's right. And eventually, if you pull them apart far enough, you create. You know, the the if if we we have we haven't we've skipped over Einstein, but one of Einstein's <laughs> yes. formulas. Who, who cares about Einstein? <laughs> what did what did he what, do? <laughs> well, one of one of his famous formulas is E equals M C squared. Okay. <laughs> So eventually, if I and and remember the you know we're talking about you know subatomic distances, and the energies that are involved are nuclear energies, and so eventually, if I try to pull these colored particles 
far enough apart, the amount of energy I've used, I have to supply in order to do that, is equal to the energy that is needed to make two new particles. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's a lot. <laughs> so that's a lot of energy. So if I, if I, but if I create, if I, what I can do is, is to say, okay, I can take some of the energy in these um, chromoelectric and chromomagnetic fields and use it to create a particle-antiparticle pair, a new pair of quarks. And one quark goes off with the one I'm pulling this way, and the other quark goes off with the one I'm going this way. And then, and now, you know, if the color charges cancel, I've created something which has no net color charge, and they can go off and separate their merry way right. as color-neutral objects. And so, and that so takes a tremendous, tremendous amount of energy. So that is not, yes, uh, I mean, from a strong force perspective, uh, generally not possible. Uh, so what's the weak force? Uh, how does that work and what does that do? Right. So the, the, so, so let, let me just f finish off the sure, sure. strong yeah. forces and, and, and then we'll move on to, to the weak force. So, so the idea is that uh, everything we see in nature, uh, you know, I like the isolated atomic nuclear protons, neutrons, all these particles, are themselves net color neutral. And the reason, and this is where, as I was saying, the, the physicists like to borrow terminology to, to sort of guide their thinking. Um, if I, the, the, the proton has three quarks inside it, um, and you know each one carries its own color charge, red, green, and blue. But we know in, in um, you know, in, in, we, we learn in, in, um, in uh, color theory, that if you combine equal amounts of red, green, and blue, you make white light, which, <laughs> which has no color. <laughs> and so it works the same way, roughly speaking, um, in in the theory of the strong forces. That if I have a red quark, a green quark, and a blue quark, as a as an aggregate, they carry no net color charge. And so the proton can be, you know, pulled away from other protons and neutrons without having you know, to supply a force proportional to the distance because the proton itself is a color neutral object. Hmm. And what was thought of in the 1930s as this you know, pions you know, carrying the force, strong force between protons and neutrons is some kind of residue of this more microscopic phenomenon that uh, two protons can exchange a pion. The pion is itself a quark and an anti-quark, again, color neutral. And so um, so that you sort of at somewhat larger distances than the size of a proton, uh, we have this sort of residual part of the strong force, which consists of the sort of color neutral parts of the strong force um, playing with each other uh, through residual interactions uh, of uh, further strongly interacting particles, and and so um, uh, the but but you know th those do have consequences. Uh, yeah. So for instance, when people started turning on particle accelerators in the 1950s uh, and 60s, they started seeing more and more strongly interacting particles. And so when was uh, when was Fermi on? Fermi. So Fermi. Uh, 
initial work as a physicist dates back to the late 20s, early 30s. Um, he died in the middle 1950s. No, I, I meant the, the Fermi accelerator. When oh, the accelerator. Um, so that turned on in the late 1950s, early 1960s. Um, and the similar particle accelerator turned on at, at, uh, at CERN in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, and But at, at, at the time of the 1950s, the sort of scale of energy that was required to do these, you know, uh, nuclear scattering experiments wasn't that huge. You know, you didn't take you a device which was like miles in circumference. You could fit it inside a reasonable university laboratory building. And so roughly speaking, every major university had their own particle accelerator with some energy which was of order uh, uh, billion electron volts, which is sort of the scale of the mass of a proton. As, as I was saying, you know, you need energies which are of order, you know, the the mass of a proton in order to create these um, strongly interacting particles. Uh, but people sort of said, kept on, you know, making bigger and more fancy accelerators with more and more energy, and they kept on seeing more and more uh, strongly interacting particles, you know, as decay products of their collisions. And and so the question became, what's the organizing principle, you know, governing these particles? And uh, they started observing certain, you know, regular patterns in the spectrum of the particles and their masses and their spins and and uh, and other properties. And that's one of the sort of first evidences for this sort of what I would call a phenomenological string. Uh, this chromoelectric flux tube, which is the way we now understand it, you know, fundamentally, was just really this sort of like electric, this, um, uh, you know, rubber band, if you like, which is binding the, the particles together. And that if you, you know, slam two pieces of it together, you know, you might start it spinning like crazy. Mm. And, and uh, it's, you know, centrifugal force is enough to stretch it. And so, you know, that leads to a prediction that, you know, um, if I if I give something a lot of spin, uh, the centrifugal force stretches it, but the stretching is costs me energy and energy is mass. So I observe a relation between the spin and the mass. And this is indeed what was observed in accelerators and was the first evidence for something like a string theory. Hmm. And um, uh, and and that's, so that's where sort of string theory entered particle physics. It's not where where its eventual home was. Its eventual mm -hmm. home was not just the strong interactions, but almost everything. Uh, uh, but but the idea that that there could be some some utility for describing some part of nature using you know fundamental objects which were strings rather than particles dates to that time. So is it the same thing as sort of thing about linear? Uh, is the thing about momentum and mass or something along those lines, and be finding a relationship between the two? So things sort of spinning around. It's, it was a relation between mass and spin. So what people would mass do is they would they would plot um, the they, they would they would say okay let's make a, a two dimensional plot. Okay, one axis we'll say is the mass, the other axis is the spin. Okay, and so let's take all the data you know the different particles that we see coming out of our accelerator and let's you know plot our measurements of their mass and spin and they just started seeing them lying on 
you know, uniformly spaced. Well, there's uniformly spaced because uh, spin in quantum mechanics is quantized. So it comes in discrete units right. uh, of Planck's constant, you know, a half, one, two, three halves, two, et cetera. And so people were seeing, you know, regular recurrences of every time you look for a particle of higher spin, it would come at a higher mass. And then, you know, once you see, you plot a number of these particles, you start drawing straight lines through the plots um, and searching for what's a dynamical reason uh, for uh, uh, such a, a regularity in the in the, the pattern of masses and spins. Yeah, there's always a good story behind a regression straight line. So I guess I would imagine. <laughs> yeah, of course, the, the question is, is, are you seeing something fundamental or are you just seeing some kind of a pattern? Uh, the pattern should have an explanation. The, the, uh, one of the, you know, the, the issues in theoretical physics is, is you know, um, trying to decide what patterns and data are indic indicative of some, something deep um, and, and, and what are, uh, you know, just consequences of something else. And uh, so it turned out that, uh, you know, in, in this case, this sort of string-like behavior um, was not something fundamental. It was uh, sort of a byproduct of this property that chromoelectric flux likes to confine itself to narrow tubes um, in in uh, subatomic strongly interacting particles. So now let's touch on the weak force. Um, yes. So what exactly is it? How do we measure it? How do we know it exists? Okay. Um, well, this isn't necessarily the way it was first discovered, but maybe the, the cleanest explanation um, is that, you know, when people were first finding what they thought were the fundamental subatomic particles in the, you know, 1930s, we had the electron since Thomson. Um, you know, we have the, the proton because we know about hydrogen atoms <laughs> as being a bound state of an electron and a proton. Um, and uh, uh, and so, you know, the the atomic nucleus then, you know, very, the periodic table, you know, started teaching us there had to be something besides protons in the atomic nucleus, and that's the neutron. And so, in, in the, around 1930-ish, um, uh, Chadwick, the physicist, discovered the neutron in particle accelerators. I should say, a neutral particle is very difficult to detect right? because most of our detectors function electromagnetically, yeah. right? So you have, you know, some, um, you know, you see the charged particle over here and, you know, some other charged particle whizzes by, this one gets deflected. And so you measure the, you know, the charged particles in your apparatus, okay? But if, if, you're, if you have some charged particle in your apparatus and a neutron goes by, the neutron has no electromagnetic field and if it's far enough away from this charged particle that it doesn't see the finite range of the nuclear forces, it's as if it whizzed by and didn't the detector didn't respond. Yeah. So you know it the in a sense you know it's only when the neutron hits something like another nucleus uh, that you sort of detect its its presence. Okay. Still, people were able to produce neutrons and sort of slow them down. 
you know, because usually you, you know you have some subatomic particle accelerator, you whiz two nuclei into each other, and you know it creates some spray of particles coming out. Okay, but those spray of particles is traveling at close to the speed of light, and so that very quickly leaves your detector, and you sort of lose your track of it. So what you want to do is sort of uh, find some way of sort of slowing it, slowing down the decay products, so that you can sort of capture them and uh, you know measure their properties. And so people started figuring out, you know, what's a way of slowing down these byproducts of these nuclear collisions, and eventually we're able to sort of slow down neutrons enough that they could sort of capture them um, and, and study their properties. And one of the things they determined was that the neutron all by itself, you know, outside of atomic nuclei, is unstable. Hmm. It wants to decay into an electron and, uh, and a proton. Oh, wow. Okay. And, um, and so people started measuring that process. And the first thing they saw was that this process of the neutron decaying into an electron and a proton didn't seem to conserve energy. And, you know, and conservation laws in physics are, you know, sacrosanct. <laughs> I, like, I like the Bible. Yeah. Think. So, I mean, they're called laws for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> and and so, um, so the proposal was made, um, if I'm remembering correctly, by Pauli, that uh, a way to save our cherished conservation law of energy was to postulate there's another particle called the neutrino, hmm. and, uh, and which we now understand is another fundamental particle. But it's even more elusive than the neutron, because uh, not only does it carry no electric charge, it also doesn't respond to the strong force. The it doesn't have much force, mass either, right? I mean, that's very minute. It doesn't have much mass either. And so it's, it's just sort of, a, you know, almost ghost-like. Uh, you know, there, there are... Uh, uh, I don't know how many powers of 10, you know, billions of neutrinos, roughly, I don't know, millions, billions, any of that ilk, neutrinos streaming through you and me at, at the moment, <laughs> right? Um, uh, because the radioactive processes in the sun generate neutrinos. So part of the radiation from the sun is not just light, but neutrinos. And so there are neutrinos streaming through our body coming from the sun all the time. But, you know, we're not particularly perturbed. They don't, uh, you know, knock us around in any way. They just keep on happily streaming right through us. And the reason they keep streaming right through us is that their rate of interaction with all the other particles that we're made of is extremely tiny. And, and so, so that's the weak force, that, that the way that a neutron decays is again, by another one of these force carriers. In this case, they're called the weak bosons, sometimes called W and Z bosons. And they are the carriers of the weak force. And so yeah. what happens is that, remember I said the, the neutron and the proton were made up of three quarks. In the case of the proton, it's so that the quarks are given fanciful names up and down for the things that make up protons and neutrons. And the proton is two ups uh, and a down. Whereas the neutron is two downs and an up. 
And the way that the weak nuclear force works is that in the process of emitting a W or a Z boson, in the process of emitting a W boson, yeah. um, an up quark turns into a darn quark. So it's a very peculiar kind of a force. It's a force which changes the nature of the particles themselves. Yeah, it sort of changes uh, a Democrat to a Republican, so to speak. It, yeah, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> so, 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 um, so, so the the in the process of emitting a W boson, a neutron turns into a proton. The W boson itself is unstable, so it wants to decay into some other weakly interacting particles. And the available energy, you'd have to find. So if you've already, the neutron is slightly heavier than the proton. So the mass difference between the proton and the neutron is a certain amount of mass difference, which is an energy difference according to Einstein, E equals right. mc squared. So that creates for you an amount of available energy. And so if the W boson is to decay, it has to decay into two particles whose total mass is lighter than the mass difference of the neutron and the proton. So you look around for, and you also have to conserve charge. So you turn the neutron, which carries no electric charge, into a proton. So to balance the electric charge, you need something with the opposite charge of the proton. And the only thing around is the electron. Right. And so the W boson has to decay into an electron and this other particle, this neutrino. And so what happens is a neutron decays into a proton, an electron, and a neutrino. And that's the weak, and that's that's sort of the quintessential weak interaction, is that so, process. So the weak interaction sort of drives um, radioactivity. Is that is that the right way to think about it? Right. So suppose we have um, carbon fourteen. Okay, this thing we use to date uh, um, fossils. Okay, that's a that's a carbon atom. Carbon atoms are um, actually. I, I think I may be getting this wrong. Carbon fourteen may actually be the wrong wrong thing to um, decay. Yeah, the wrong that may actually be a strong decay. Um, no, doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Yeah. So so, but conceptually, there are atomic nuclei um, that aren't quite stable. Um, and they're not stable because they have too many neutrons. And so, um, and so, um, uh, the way they decay is if, 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 you know, su suppose uh, just for the sake of argument, suppose it's like, you know, suppose I, I was right about carbon 14. So carbon 14 is something that has, uh, to be carbon, it has to have six protons in it. That's the atomic number of uh, charge of, of a, a carbon nucleus. So then it has eight neutrons. Okay, the stable version that that that's in most you know materials around us is carbon twelve, which is six neutrons and six protons. Okay, so to turn carbon fourteen into carbon twelve. Uh, um, but to, 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 for carbon-14 to decay, um, the, you, you want one of the neutrons to decay into a proton. It doesn't turn into carbon, 
because because you have one more proton. Okay, so now you're looking for an an atomic nucleus which has instead of eight protons, eight, eight sorry, eight six protons and eight neutrons. You're looking for one that has seven of each. Mm, okay. So you can do that if you if you say turn one of the neutrons into a proton. And uh, you know the excess energy escapes as electrons and neutrinos. Okay, so that's the process why by which carbon-14 decays. It doesn't become carbon-12. It becomes um, uh, nitrogen-14. Mm. Right. So nitrogen is the atomic nucleus which has atom atomic charge seven, and has seven neutrons and seven protons. So I think I actually got it right. So, uh, so, so, so there, there are nuclear decay processes whereby the atomic nucleus decays through this weak interaction, spitting out electrons and neutrinos, uh, and leaving behind a, a, a nucleus which has more of a balance between the number of neutrons and protons. Um, is this a predictable process, Emil? I mean, could, could we, could we sort of, given time and quantity? Could we say what would happen? Uh, statistically, yes. Okay. So, um, uh, you know, so this this is a process that's governed by quantum mechanics, and so it's not predictive in the sense that if I told you the initial position and velocity of all of the particles in the atomic nucleus, I could predict, you know, when and and how and where um, the uh, the nucleus decays. So we haven't talked about quantum mechanics yet, but but quantum mechanics is predictive, but in a probabilistic way, in in the sense that it predicts the probabilities of things happening, not the certainties of things happening. Uh, and 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 so 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 given enough carbon fourteen nuclei, what you can predict is what fraction of them will decay, you know, per hour, say, or per year. Okay, and that's how we date things. It's like we 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 look, you know, that that uh, carbon fourteen is created in the atmosphere through cosmic ray collisions, and so anything that's living breathes in carbon fourteen. Once so it dies, the once it dies, the 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 it stops breathing, so it's no longer taking in carbon fourteen. So all the carbon fourteen atoms start decaying into into nitrogen. And so if you look and and what's the proportion of the carbon 12 versus the carbon 14, you get an, an idea of how old something is. Because so that's the carbon dating process. That's, that's how carbon dating works. It's basically relies on this weak nuclear force. So, so, so we have these four fundamental forces, gravity, electromagnetism, strong force and weak force. And the standard model, um, appears to be extremely successful combining three of them. Yes. But not the fourth one, right? So um, we, we probably have to come back um, uh, tomorrow to talk more about it, but I just want you to set the context for it. So there is a level of discomfort in physics. There are two extremely successful theories. <laughs> Einstein's theory of general relativity it seems to uh, explain things in large distances and a big scale. And quantum mechanics is exceptionally successful in uh, in explaining everything else, so to speak. 
It's um, very in the subatomic realm. It's uh, yeah. So, but but physics physics is about you know sort of having a, a very elegant combined framework. We cannot have two gods. There has to be a singular god, and uh, we haven't found her yet. So that yeah. that is that is really where we are heading, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. So so it's a set the context for why we are seeking string theory. Right. So, um, so you know, we began on this journey of of uh, reductionism. Um, you know, trying to um, find underlying causes uh, for the phenomena that we observe in nature. Which is not to say, you know, um, sometimes my condensed matter colleagues chafe at the use of the word fundamental. <laughs> uh, in what particle physics, so as as if what they're doing is somehow not equally important, um, and so so there is a whole other thing that one should talk about is that you know once you have the sort of fundamental description of nature, you know, explaining from the standard model, you know, how the climate works, <laughs> okay, is you know building back through all of these layers that you peeled away to find the standard model. Okay, and then each layer is itself a whole set of complicated equations that you have to go solve. <clears throat> so, so let's be clear on what the aims are. It's not, not like we're trying to, you know, explain every phenomenon in nature by the use of four fundamental forces. It's it's more, you know, sort of a proof of principle that uh, underlying everything uh, are these fundamental forces, and uh, and that. Um, uh, you know, the idea being that, um, you know, with a big enough computer and 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 those laws of nature uh, that you could, in principle, work your way back up um, and explain more complicated things uh, in terms of these elementary forces. Um, and and so 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 that sort of spirit of trying to find ever more deep layers of the nature has been the driving force, you know, from Newton through Maxwell into quantum mechanics and the the you know the 1930s and 1940s when we were first understanding the strong and weak forces, um, you know, on through to the post-war era where you know we were finally getting enough energy that the standard model kind of came into view, you know, and with a a final flourish in the 1960s and early 1970s, where we understood that each of these forces, the strong force, the weak force, the electromagnetic force, are all have the same Maxwell-like description. That is, yeah. there are particles that are charged under these forces. They emit the analogs of electric and magnetic fields. They're just you know, chromomagnetic or weak magnetic and electric. Uh, forces, and those are the ways by which particles interact. And you know, in the particle physics realm, that's it. I mean, you know, this theory has been confirmed uh, in you know exquisite precision. You know, some of the experiments to you know like ten decimal places. I mean, just extraordinary um, uh, you know precision for a. Uh, 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 you know, an experimentalist to achieve. And so, you know, by now there's there's absolutely no question that 
uh, at the scales that we've tested, you know, this is the theory. Okay, but uh, you know, okay, we never set on our laurels. We're always wanting more, and you know, there's still one other force of nature that hasn't sort of been, you know, brought into the fold, um, and and that indeed is the force of gravity. And part of the reason is that the gravitational force is extraordinarily weak. You know, if you think about it, you know, you're sitting in your chair, I'm sitting in my chair, because of the force of gravity of all of the rest of the Earth on you and me. Okay, so and I can just stand up, and you can stand up, and so you can you can you can counteract the force of the entire Earth's gravity <laughs> by standing up. Okay. So the amount of gravitational field that any individual atom in the Earth is exerting on you is extraordinarily tiny. You know, compared to the electromagnetic forces, right, that, that act between charged objects, you know, those act over, you know, um, those, you know, a, 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 you know, you know, a magnet, right? Magnet, you know, sticks to a piece of iron with a pretty strong force if it's a if it's a, a strong magnet okay so uh, you know that's just a few atoms um, and 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 yet you know it's you know I can lift something up with a magnet so the magnetic force is obviously exceeding the gravitational force yet the you know the number of 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 uh, atoms in the in the magnet is much much smaller than the number of atoms in the earth Okay, so that gives you an, an idea of how much smaller the gravitational force is than um, the uh, uh, than the uh, the other forces. And so this is no, a, sorry, Neil. So this is a puzzle, right? So we look at the other three, and we we can measure them. Uh, we can see them as really strong, measurable things, and then we have this fourth thing. Yeah. that appears extremely weak um, and it it perplexes us. So, so so I guess one question I have as as a, you know with, with knowing nothing about it is that is it, it could it be that gravity is not a fundamental force? It is something different? Uh, yeah, that so people have have tried that sort of approach. Um, uh, you know, that gravity is somehow induced out of something else. Other things that people have thought about, you know, if, the other theories are all quantum mechanical theories. You could worry, you know, is gravity somehow not quantum mechanical and, and doesn't, you know, follow the laws of quantum mechanics, but is just its own, you know, pure Einsteinian, you know, thing off by itself. Um, and, and all of those sorts of ideas uh, have their own um, conceptual difficulties and inconsistencies. Uh, and so our best understanding is that gravity should be brought into the fold, like with the other forces, and unified in some way. And so I should first say that um, Einstein's reformulation of Newton's theory of gravity is to is to is along the Maxwellian model, namely that you don't have two masses interacting at a distance. There is instead there is a gravitational field 
And this body emits a gravitational field, which propagates through space and time over to here, and then this body responds. And we know that to be the case because we've now detected gravitational waves. Yeah. So the analog of Hertz's experiment detecting radio waves has now been carried out where we see two colliding black holes. Uh, you know, it, again, it takes objects the size of, you know, the sun colliding <laughs> uh, to emit enough gravitational energy that we can detect it um, as the faintest, uh, you know, radiation uh, uh, a billion light years away. And, and so, so it's the same model. It's that there's a gravitational field. Uh, it's emitted by every object in the universe because every object has either mass or energy and mass and energy are equivalent. And since mass gravitates, energy gravitates. So even the photon gravitates, even the photon has no mass, it has energy. And so it gravitates like, it, like everything else gravitates. So, so I, I don't know much about this idea. So couldn't, couldn't we take Maxwell's equation and reformulate it for gravity? I mean, it seems like it's sort of in the same neighborhood. It's, yeah, so you, you might say, ah, inverse force law proportional to the charges, you know, replace the charge by the mass, you know, kind of looks the same. So why don't we just write the same equations and, you know, erase a factor of two over here. And you know. <laughs> uh, so, um, so the reason is, um, one of the reasons is that um, uh, this idea that um, that the the charge, the analog of the charge for gravity is energy. Yeah. And and so um, um, that has a number of consequences. Um, so I mean, so so one one thing is that it it makes Einstein's theory very nonlinear. Mm in a way that electromagnetism isn't, because everything has energy. Even the graviton itself, if you know, these gravitational waves that we're detecting with LIGO, um, right, we're detecting the energy that the wave is depositing in the detector. And so, so Einstein's theory is fundamentally different from Maxwell's theory uh, because everything gravitates. Even gravity gravitates, <laughs> and and so um, so it's not going to be quite the same as Maxwell's theory. It's a little bit more akin to the strong interactions because in the strong interactions, not only do the quarks carry color charges, the gluons that are transmitting the force themselves carry color charge, and that's actually part of what's responsible for the strong interactions being having this um, property of increasing. Um, uh, energy is that the that the uh, the chromoelectric field that's spanning the distance between the quarks itself has some energy associated with the electric field interacting with itself, um, and and so um, so so there are differences, um, and uh, uh, but it's it's a it's a field what's called a field theory. You're, you're describing the gravitational field uh, and its dynamics. Um, there's another aspect of it which is also kind of confusing um, conceptually, 
which is that in Maxwell's theory, we sort of lay out space and time as a background, sort of a, an arena in which dynamics takes place. Mm. Right? We say, okay, what did Newton say? Newton said, give me all of the you know, constituents and their positions and velocities at some initial time. Where, you know, tell me where they are, what their velocities are at some instant of time, and then I'll predict what happens in the future. Okay? So space and time are sort of the arena in which all of that unfolds. And you know, then along comes Einstein and says, uh, no, first of all, um, you know, the space and time are, are actually um, malleable concepts. Mm-hmm. that the, 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 the sort of underlying structure of his theory is that the gravitational field is the geometry of space and time. And, you know, what's happening when I have a, a massive particle here, it, the, the gravitational field that it's emitting is a warping of or curvature of the geometry of space and time. And so... That's part of the nonlinearity of the theory. In order to decide how things propagate from here to here and influence one another, you have to know what the geometry of space and time is to say what's the arena in which that propagation takes place. Mm. But that arena is itself the dynamical object. Mm. It's very self-referential. Um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's making my head spin, uh, Emil. So. Uh, so, so we'll come back tomorrow and talk about sort of the history of. So, um, let me finish up with this. So, the the the, the issue that we have is that we haven't been able to combine the four forces into a singular theory. Mm-hmm. Um, they seem to have emanated from different angles, um, and they seem to explain things at different scales. Yes, but that is not satisfying in enough from a physics perspective. Right. Uh, so that's what you call the sort of the grand unification theory attempts, right? Yeah. So I think tomorrow, um, if I could s- sort of lay out a plan, we should probably go back and, and cover in some detail the 20th part of the 20th century that we skipped. <laughs> <laughs> Namely... There's nothing that happened there, I mean, come on. Oh, come on. You know? Relativity, quantum mechanics. I mean, these so, are so so we, we should touch we should touch on relativity and quantum mechanics, um, and and uh, and in particular Einstein's theory of gravity. Well, we already described a little bit Einstein's theory of gravity, okay. But but um, you know just to sort of whet people's appetite to to why it's a problem to combine Einstein's theory with all the other forces is again this business that. Um, uh, Mass is energy, and energy, and 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 therefore, uh, energy governs the strength of gravitational interactions. So, if we're looking for, so so, you know, as opposed to Maxwell's theory, where you just fix the charges, okay, and and you know that governs how strong the electric interactions, magnetic interactions are. In gravity, if you repeat the same experiment, at, but you just collide the particles at higher energy, the gravitational forces are stronger because the strength of gravity is mass equals energy. And if the energy of the collision was bigger, then the force is stronger. 
And so, so you kind of running into a problem of peeling away this structure of nature and trying to find things that are ever more microscopic and higher energy, then you're going to run into a problem because gravity is going to become very strong. And, and the idea of unification is that around the natural scale of gravity, called the Planck scale, is very close to the energy at which it looks like all of the other three forces have also about the same strength of interaction. Mm. And so, you know, it's not guaranteed, but it's certainly suggestive that these forces have a common origin that stems from physics near what's called the Planck energy scale. Right. And and so 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 that's one of several reasons why one thinks that there should be some common structure underlying all of the forces, including gravity. Uh, but maybe yeah, that's. Talk about this. Sorry, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Yeah. No, I just say, that, but uh, but uh, um, that's for the next installment. Yeah, so, so we'll talk about this tomorrow. You know, um, I somehow feel like if if everything is hidden in the Planck scale mm. in space and time. And it is not really approachable from an experimental perspective. Yes. Then God does have a sense of humor. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, we can make all the theories we want, but we won't be able to really prove it at that scale, right? Is that is that true? So we we would have to be lucky, um, right? Because. That scale is so remote. It's 16 orders of magnitude more energetic than our most powerful particle accelerators, um, you know, the LHC at CERN, for example. Right. So the likelihood that we would ever, in a laboratory setting, uh, reach the scale of energies needed to confirm the theory, you know, at at that energy, uh, it's extremely unlikely. So. We have to look for other um, sort of uh, uh, vestigial um, <laughs> manifestations of interactions at that scale. And one place is cosmology, where there, you know, we think there was a big bang, and so there might have been, you know, energetic collisions on that scale going on in the early universe. And we could ask, you know, have the imprints of those violent early collisions sort of imprinted themselves somehow on the structure of cosmology that we see today? So that's one place. Another place is in black holes, where <laughs> Einstein's theory breaks down. Um, in the core of a black hole, there's supposedly, according to Einstein's theory, the core of a black hole has a singularity. And what the singularity means is, once again, that collisions become arbitrarily energetic at the singularity. And so if Einstein's theory held all the way down to the singularity of a black hole, um, then, um, then you would need something to replace Einstein's theory uh, uh, to, to make sense of what happens there. Now, the unfortunate thing there, uh, again, God is laughing at us once again. <laughs> Because surrounding the singularity of a black hole is an event horizon that says if you want to sit outside the black hole, then you can't see what's happening at the singularity. So you know what's going on, but you don't know much about it because you yeah, can't. Yeah, it's like the U.S. Congress. 
You can right. sit outside, but you don't know what the heck is going on inside. That's right. You don't want to watch the sausage being made. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, to see the sausage being made, you'd have to dive into the black hole. <laughs> but then you would become part of the sausage. <laughs> so, uh, not a recipe yeah, I mean, for a long-lived... I think uh, you uh, physicists have so much fun. You guys have to pay the taxpayers rather than nothing around, you know? I mean... A lot of people pay for the type of fun you guys are having. I feel very fortunate uh, in my career uh, that I've been able to do what I love um, and and earn a living at it. Um, so yes, um, <laughs> I, uh, uh, I feel blessed in that way. Yes. No, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So we'll come back tomorrow and then um, we will talk about the forgotten theories of general theory of relativity and quantum mechanics. Yes. And then uh, we'll go into string theory. Yes, we can talk about Einstein and Schrodinger and Heisenberg and all of those other people we skipped over. Yes. Excellent. Thanks so much, right. Emil. Okay, talk to you tomorrow. All right, take care.